So uh, I'm very glad that uh, uh, Reverend Matthew is back. Yes. And uh, we are closing in on both Hanukkah and Christmas, um, which really have very little to do with each other except in the American psyche. And uh, they're both on the 25th. But they are. They do. What one thing they do both have, which would be an interesting thing to study, is that they both have origins that predate either tradition in terms of solstice uh, uh, festivals. But beyond that, they go in incredibly different directions in the two traditions. But I want to wish everyone who celebrates a really joyous holiday. And uh, um, so Matthew's going to begin today uh, with a chant for us. So this sort of inward time of year where nature is turning in on itself and we're kind of turning in on ourselves, um, kind of hibernation inward introspective season as we prepare for uh, the coming of the light again, both in the natural world but then in our traditions. Uh, you know, our great sacred traditions, we've got so many festivals of light that, that come around this time of year as we're celebrating light's return. And I thought I could uh, share with us a chant that's sort of an inward-focused chant. The words are simply changeless and calm, deep mystery, ever more deeply rooted in thee. And so I'll start the chant, and once it gets going, feel free just to join in as you're comfortable. First, just taking a deep breath and arriving in this sacred space together. Changeless and calm, deep mystery. Yeah. 
So may we all at this time of year and at all times and with every breath be rooted in that deep mystery that holds us all together, that deep mystery in which we are all one. May we be rooted ever more deeply in that one who is love that we may more and more be and bear that love and in for our world in need. At this time of the dark of the year when we await and celebrate lights coming and all of its many subtle and spectacular and beautiful ways. The, uh, we thought we would study the birth narratives uh, in the Gospels uh, because it's almost Christmas. So that seemed like good timing. And uh, Matthew and I were, had our planning meeting earlier this week talked for hours, literally. Uh, we'll, we'll see what happens today. It's an incredibly rich subject for a rabbi and a priest to study these texts together in the context of first century Judaism. I'm reminding you that that is our, uh, that's sort of our, our mission statement in this class. And, um, uh, um, Matthew was explaining to us in the first weeks that uh, modern Christian scholarship attributes different dates of composition to the different Gospels. Mark being the earliest, followed by Matthew, and then Luke, and then John. And if you then read the opening of each Gospel with that sense that perhaps this was a developing story, right? an emerging telling. Uh, it's really illuminating. It's a really useful way to approach it, especially because I'm going to give the floor to Matthew in a moment. Mark has no mention of the birth of Jesus. Right? We studied the beginning of Mark. It starts when he shows up at the Jordan River with John the Baptist. So there's no mention. Then there's a birth narrative in Matthew. And then there's a very different birth narrative in Luke. And then John is utterly cosmic in its opening. And so they're so different. And of course, in our minds, uh, and it, it, because we, we're like wired to make a coherent narrative. right? That's what we do. We want to tell the story. They get, it's a great mashup. Uh, the, the Christmas story of all these three and Mark isn't even included and then of course there's Charlie Brown in it too and, <laughs> and who knows who else so let, just by giving that framing I want to hand it over to Matthew to, to start sharing with us yeah that's very helpful so that's what we want to do we want to look at each of these threads individually and um, and then we can look at the synthesis that that Christians today have on their Christmas cards We've got elements from all these different stories 
um, in one image, but when we look at the stories themselves, um, they're, they're very different and unique tellings. And I thought I would start with just a word as we approach these kinds of stories, a word on the poetic imagination and how central that is in both Jewish and early Christian traditions. Um, there's a bishop in the, the Episcopal Church, John Shelby Spong, who talks about uh, the Gentile heresy of literalism. And he says that, that the Jewish imagination and this midrashic poetic imagination, um, when it, it wrote and told these kinds of stories, there was an understanding that, it was, that we were working with images, we're working with poetry, we're working with myth and metaphor, and that it's um, generations later, when Gentiles come into the fold, that they start locking these things into um, uh, historical literalism, you know, as if uh, that's the only way it can be read. So he calls literalism the Gentile heresy, which um, I love. I think that's a, a, a fun and delightful uh, <laughs> languaging. Um, but I thought I would start at St. Gregory's. We've been reading this lovely book from Brother David Steindelross that Susan Achenkost recommended called Deeper Than Words. And it's a series of meditations on the lines of the Christian Apostles' Creed. And I thought I'd just read a few words from him on the mythic and poetic imagination to kind of uh, get us started. So he writes, uh, Born of the Virgin Mary, the line from our Christian creed, means that the birth of Jesus in the world as well as in human hearts marks the dew-fresh dawn of a new beginning. Virgin birth is a mythic image for an altogether new start. Mythic, someone is apt to ask, do you mean this doctrine is not true? On the contrary, a mythic image conveys far more truth than an abstract statement, as long as we do not take it literally. If the phrase born of the Virgin Mary were a gynecological report, <laughs> then the sentence, I give you my heart, would have to refer to a heart transplant. <laughs> In both cases, we are dealing with poetic language. No other way of speaking can pack so much meaning into so few words. This is why we wax poetic when we are in love. Poetry can carry a great deal more truth than reporting. Myth is the expression of insights too weighty for any but poetic language. Um, and so, right, a fabulous statement. So um, as we approach these stories, I want to invite us to, to approach them with poetic imagination, with an understanding that myth doesn't mean uh, less than factual or less than true, but myth means more than factual, um, that it's, it's pointing to that, that depth. And just to give you a, a sense that this isn't uh, a sort of postmodern, newfangled way of reading scripture, I want you to see that there's a long tradition in the Jewish and in the Christian worlds of reading our sacred scriptures poetically and mythically in this way. So I want to read you a passage from a, a Christian commentator, and then we'll see it, we'll guess who he is. He's writing about the Genesis creation account, okay? So this is uh, a little far away from our birth narratives, but maybe not so much. He writes, For who that has understanding will suppose that the first and second and third day, and the evening and the morning, 
existed without a sun and moon and stars, and that the first day was, as it were, also without a sky. And who is it so stupid as to suppose that God, after the manner of a husbandman, planted a paradise in Eden toward the east, and placed in it a tree of life, visible and palpable, so that one tasting of the fruit by the bodily teeth obtained life? And again, that one was a partaker of good and evil by masticating what was taken from the tree. And if God is said to walk in the paradise in the evening and Adam to hide himself under a tree, I do not suppose that anyone doubts that these things figuratively indicate certain mysteries, the history having taken place in appearance and not literally. Who do you think said that? What century were they writing in? What century would you guess those words were, were written down in? The 19th century? Those words are from the great father of the church, Origen of Alexandria, who was born in the year 184. Oh my gosh. And so the early church was not a bunch of literalists. The great fathers of the church um, had poetic and mythic imagination, and they read the scriptures in that way. And so we see that, that um, particularly the, the great theologians of the early church, they read the scriptures allegorically. Um, and, and again, this hard, heavy literalism is actually a modern invention. It's, it's as modernity uh, comes into our worldview, there's a backlash against modernity that starts reading the scriptures in this really literal um, kind of way. So I just want to begin with that framing that someone as early as Origen um, understood myth and poetry. And of course the same is true for the Jews of that period. Because what separates these early Christian thinkers from their Jewish kin virtually. And so when the rabbis declare, when they're interpreting a passage, both these and these are words of the living God. They, they understand that the word of God, or when they say the word, God's voice is like a hammer against an anvil, and it shoots sparks in all directions. They understand that language is limited and that multiple interpretations are a necessity. Otherwise, we're stupid, <coughs> right, to use that language that was in that. Uh, so it's all, it's not, this is not Christian or Jewish. This is both. So when we, when we turn to the texts, well, well, first of all, the question is, um, in the Christian tradition, we, we use the language of incarnation. We talk about Jesus being the incarnation or enfleshment or embodiment of the divine, of God. Um, and we can hear that as a doctrine or a dogma, but we can also hear it simply as pointing to an experience that um, the early followers of Jesus experienced the life, the power, the spirit, the force of the holy, of God, in this life in such a full and complete way that, that they had to find language to talk about an encounter so powerful. Um, and so the first language we have around this, it actually uh, comes from St. Paul, uh, who's our earliest layer of the New Testament. In his second letter to the church in Corinth, he writes these words. What year would this be? This is probably in the 50s or 60s he's writing. And he says, God was in Christ, was in Jesus, reconciling the world to God's self. Uh, now again, is that a dogma or a doctrine? 
or is it an experience? They had ex- he experienced this reconciling love so powerfully in this human life that he had to put words around it, and the words were, God was in Jesus, reconciling the world. Um, we've probably all had experiences of God in a human life, someone who was so holy, so full of, of, of love, of humility, of, um, of truth, that, that you could say, God was in her. God was in him. Um, and so that's the early framing, the first framing. These early disciples start thing, saying things like, God was in this guy. And, and then we, we tell stories, as humans do. Well, how did God get in Jesus? How was it that he was so full of divine life? And so our first report uh, is, is actually in Paul's letter to the Romans. So we've looked at this language of the Son of God, which we saw in Mark's account is really the language given to um, kings, right? That David, we're told in the Psalms, was declared, um, this day I have begotten you, this day you are my son. So Paul says, well, when does Jesus give him that title? And in the letter to the Romans, he writes that uh, Jesus was appointed, the word can be translated appointed, designated, or declared. Jesus was appointed, declared, the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead. Now we're going to get to resurrection, but what is Paul saying? That the title Son of God is given to him in the experience of resurrection. So he applies the title at the very end, right, of Jesus' life. Mark says, wait a minute, he was filled with the Spirit of God at his baptism by John, and in Mark's opening, we heard the voice say, you are my beloved, my son, at the baptism, right? Um, and then, a couple decades later, we get Matthew and Luke saying, no, he had to be filled with God from his birth. And so the story goes back even further. Um, and, and so we're going to look at, at those accounts, but I want to just come back to the idea that behind the doctrine, the dogma, the, the beautiful myth-making is an experience. And that experience is an experience that there was a life that was so filled with God that, that poetry and language and myth had to be told to express that experience. Would you say anything in regards to that? Uh, that was well put. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> All right. Um, so what we want to do, we want to turn to... Uh, the first birth narrative, and you've got a handout, and we've given you all three of the major birth narratives or, or origin stories for Jesus, and I've actually put on the sheet the first reference in the New Testament to Jesus' birth, and as Jonathan said, as we look at these texts chronologically, we see that um, the earliest layers, uh, Paul and the New Testament epistles, the other epistle authors, None of them mention or seem to be aware of any notions of a spectacular birth. Um, And and it's probably helpful for us to remind ourselves that uh, we remember people's births not because they had amazing births. We remember their births because they had amazing lives, right? And so someone could have an amazing birth, but live a life that wasn't all that spectacular, and we wouldn't remember their birth, right? But someone is an amazing life, has an amazing um, adulthood, and then we recount these stories in a way like George Washington. The story about George Washington chopping down the cherry tree, right? We know now that that's, that's hagiography, that's myth-making, uh, that never happened. 
But the, the honor in this person was so great that people had to say, well, it must have been in him from childhood. And so you get this story. Um, so the first reference to Jesus' birth comes from St. Paul. And it's uh, in the fourth chapter of his letter to the church in Galatia. And you see it at the top of the sheet. And he just simply said, when the fullness of time had come. Um, and, and behind this is this notion in Greek language. There are two senses of time. There's kairos, which is um, the time of fullness, of fulfillment. It's sort of the eternal breaking into time. And there's chronos, which is our, our linear chronological time. And so Paul, behind this, is that concept of kairos, the fullness of time, when eternity broke into time. When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So that's the first reference that we have, that Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law. I mean, it sort of sounds like nothing special here, folks. Move along, right? That's sort of the gist of it. Um, and I even wonder if Paul was perhaps hearing stirrings of the early stories about a miraculous birth, and he's sort of brushing them aside. He goes, he's born of a woman, born under the law, you know? Um, whatever the case, he doesn't, um, you would think in his reference here to Jesus' birth, and we know Paul from his own writings, he met with the early apostles. He met with Peter. He met with um, leaders in the early movement. If he had known of the story, when this opportunity comes where he references the birth, he would have spoken of it, one would think. Um, but he just leaves it very matter-of-fact, born of a woman, under the law. Um, so who was her husband? Well, that's, that's, that's much jumping ahead, so okay. just hold on to that. Okay. So, yes? What would you say means uh, born uh, under the law? Well, I, I think it's a reference to Torah, that he was Torah. born in a, a, a Torah-keeping family, you know, that, that um, he was born according to the laws of Torah, a normal, good Jewish boy, right. you know? Right, a regular yid, yeah, a regular yeah. Jewish boy. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, yeah. So that, that first sentence is Paul? That's St. Paul, yeah, that's Paul writing. Um, I, I'm not sure when Galatians is usually uh, dated, but it would be the 50s or 60s. Um, remembering that Jesus died somewhere around the year 30. Yeah. Uh, and so if you, I haven't read that Paul deeply, but he, is, he writes many letters to nascent Christian communities, would they be called Christian at that point? Followers of the way right, of Jesus. The way of Jesus. Uh, and he's, he's writing the letters, telling them how they should do this, rather than, and, and so, so one can assume with some, one can make the assumption, as, as Matthew said, that he might be responding in this letter to stuff he was hearing and saying, no, 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 that's not what's going on. There wasn't a, we're not talking about a miraculous birth. We're talking about a, a human of flesh and blood. You follow what I'm saying? I just want to reiterate the point that Matthew's made. So that's our first reference, um, that, that simple sort of almost throwaway line. And, um, and throughout the, the epistle literature, the letters, um, no more references to his origins show up. Anywhere in Paul's writings. Anywhere in Paul's writings. Mark comes on the scene writing his narrative gospel around 70. We have the baptism as the opening narrative. And then Matthew, we think, is written probably in the 80s. And uh, the thing to remember about Matthew is that it's often called the Jewish gospel. Um, that Matthew was writing primarily to a group of Jewish Christians, yes, with Gentile converts in the mix, but he really, his goal is to show Jesus' rootedness 
in Torah, in the prophets, um, and so he's always drawing references to um, Jewish scripture and, and rooting Jesus in the Davidic line, etc. Um, Luke, which will come later, it's thought that he's writing largely to a Gentile proselyte community and congregation, and so he has a slightly different theological agenda. Um, and so Matthew begins his gospel sometime in the 80s with a genealogy. And so we're just going to start... No, in the 70s, you said. Uh, probably, no, probably the 80s. 80s Mark, okay. Mark is in, uh, around Oh, Mark's 70s. around 70s, sorry. And scholars think Matthew Matthew's probably comes a decade 80s. later. Okay. Um, Jonathan, do you want to say anything by way of this genealogy to sort of anchor it in... Genealogies are a thing in the Hebrew scriptures, right? Right. Uh, when so-and-so begets so-and-so begets so-and-so begets so-and-so. It's crucial... Uh, if you know of other um, um, indigenous cultures who have an oral story, oral storytelling tradition, there's a keeper of the narrative who, like, I remember meeting a Korah player from West Africa whose job was to sing the genealogy of the leaders of the tribe going back, you know, to the 14th or 13th century. There were 700 years of names that would be recited as part. So the, the boring parts of Genesis... And so and so beget so and so beget so and so. For them, it's crucial. It connects the generations. It shows where it came from. And so it's crucial to alternate, say, when you're reading Genesis, between the narrative stories and then the genealogical uh, accounts. Um, uh, would you pass this back to David? Um, so part of his agenda here. Uh, he wants to show, um, and Mark, Mark doesn't seem to have much concern with Jesus' uh, genealogy, but here there's a desire to show that Jesus has the proper credentials to be Messiah. And the, the commonplace wisdom was that the Messiah, who is supposed to be in the succession of, of kings, the Messiah is the new king to sit on David's throne, so he needs to be within the Davidic lineage. He needs to be a son of David by blood. Um, and so that's uh, what the first section uh, of this genealogy does. It begins an account of the genealogy of Yeshua the Mashiach, of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So we're giving him his Jewish credentials right here. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and this continues on down to Obed the father of Jesse and Jesse the father of King David. Um, but what is important to note in this lineage, in this first paragraph, you'll see two women show up. Tamar, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and then a couple lines down, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. Uh, and then in the next line, Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. Three women show up right there, um, which is interesting and somewhat peculiar. Um, at this point, lineage isn't traced matrilineally. It's traced patrilineally in Judaism. Today we think of tracing it matrilineally, but that's not the case. And so these women aren't necessary in the genealogy. So just hold the question, why do they show up? And then in the next line, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, that is Bathsheba, okay? Um, so Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba show up in Jesus' lineage. And women are being very 
it's intentional that they're here. You don't accidentally put them in. So would you reflect on those four women, Jonathan? Sure. Uh, so let me, ref let me say something a little broader first, which is that this is a utterly stylized genealogy. It even says so. Look down at verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. So okay. there's some numerology. There's going numerology on. on remember, this, number seven is the number in Judaism. If you're not aware of that, just plug that in. Whenever sevens, multiples of seven come up, it's because it's a symbolic number, not a literal number. The earth is created in seven days, and seven becomes the organizing principle of how you mark time and how, how, how you live. Right? So seven, seven, seven. So Matthew's making the point of pointing out the sevens. But when you study the lineages in the Book of Kings, for example, he's left out five kings to make it work. <laughs> to okay. get his 14s. To get his 14s. In addition to significant number of names that uh, in the third 14 that we have no record of. Okay, this is an invented, purposeful genealogy which we would take issue with from our literal perspective, but which is serving a poetic function for the early listener. You follow what I'm saying? Uh, if you're not, raise your hand and I'll try to explain it again. But uh, this is not a literal genealogy. And he's doing what Paul did in that verse um, just up above, when the fullness of time had come. So Matthew is showing from a symbolic numerological perspective how this is the fullness. Now what could the numer... I'm sorry. Yeah, so there are speculations on the numerology of 14 because David in Hebrew, Dalid Vav Dalid, is 14. Okay? Dalid is 4, Vav is 6, Dalit is four. So David's name equals 14. Do so you, you think... go 14, 14, 14, Jesus. <laughs> you okay. know, it's like saying, he's the one. This is, this is for me the accurate way to read this text. That doesn't make it, un, it makes it untrue in terms of a genealogical chart, a tree of life or a DNA test. In fact, by the time of the, uh, Jesus' birth, all the, the David's lineage had been lost. We know it. There are contemporaneous accounts from the centuries after the Babylonian exile where we no longer can keep track of the Davidic monarchy anymore. It's been dislocated too many times. We've lost the bloodline. So this is a claim to reclaim the bloodline in its spiritual essence. And so then you can ask, so when you understand it as a as a uh, uh, a by the way David means lover or beloved or right? beloved in Hebrew Dodi li my beloved David is a David David Dawood is beloved so that also ties in uh, so now, a, a fundamentalist literalist would say isn't it, isn't God so great that God ordered history in this perfect structured way? Right. That God timed the fourteen and the fourteen and the fourteen. 
Um, but again, the early Christian movement would have said, isn't this an amazing allegory, an amazing um, symbolic narrative? We have to remember the authors of these texts weren't themselves necessarily literalists. Um, we might assume that they wrote it and intended it literally, but that's, that's an assumption. Um, that the Jewish midrashic mind didn't work that way. That's right. So when you study the Hebrew Bible, you also find groupings of seven constantly. Okay? Or ten. For instance, when you read Genesis, there are ten generations from Adam to Noah. There are ten generations from Noah to Abraham. That's, because ten is another of the, you know, for some reason, seven, three, and ten are part of, this, part of the core numbers of the Bible. So this is also not, this is also a Jewish way to do it. Uh, so then, once we've kind of like shaken off, like trying to get all the dates and names right, then we notice the anomaly. Four women, specifically named. Who are these women? So um, uh, Tamar is uh, the um, daughter-in-law of Judah, in Genesis chapter 38. Judah gives his firstborn, to, and Tamar they marry, and his firstborn dies. So according to biblical law, he has to give his next son so that there can be a child in the patriarchal uh, clan. And that son refuses, his name is Onan, you ever heard of Onanism? He spills his seed, and uh, he is afflicted and dies. At that point, uh, uh, Judah refuses to give his third son to Tamar, which he is required to do by law, because he doesn't want him to die. And uh, so Tamar then, in order to fulfill Judah's responsibility, dresses in disguise as a prostitute, as a prostitute or a Kadesha, it's like there's that word prostitute again, it's like we're not sure, uh, but it seems to be prostitute in this case, because, and, and uh, Judah sleeps with her, she conceives and bears twins, and then when Judah hears that Tamar is with child, and she's not supposed to be sleeping with anybody, uh, he, he says, take her out and burn her. And then she shows up because he has left, as she requested, his staff and his signet ring with her as a uh, um, uh, pledge. And uh, he, she says, well, do you recognize these? <laughs> By the way, you're the father. <laughs> At which point Judah repents. Those children are twins, once again, another twin motif. And from those twins, uh, from Peretz, one of the twins, descends King David. But King David is not the only one, uh, is not the, Tamar is not the only significant out-of-bounds woman that uh, David descends from, because Ruth is the next one who then is, remember Ruth's from Moab, she's not a she's Hebrew. a Gentile. But she comes and says, when, and when her husband dies, she comes back to the land of Canaan with her mother-in-law Naomi and says, your people shall be my people. And then there's this very... This beautiful story, and also what's going on here uh, between Ruth and Boaz on the threshing floor, and Ruth becomes the great grandmother of King David. Naomi says, "Go to Boaz, and when he's alone, when he's you know preparing for bed, 
lie down at his feet. Lie down at his feet and she uncovers his feet, which is a euphemism. And so again, we have a woman taking the story into her own hands. Both of these women are taking the story into their hands. Mm -hmm. um, and then we're going to get Mary, who's a woman who sort of takes the story into her hands. So we're getting a setup for these powerful women who are on the margins, are in the lineage of Jesus. And women, there's, there's also a, a drawing in of Gentiles. It's, it's a pointer right. that, hey, Jesus' lineage already includes Gentiles. Because there's this question, do we include Gentiles in this new movement? So they're saying, look, look at these wild, right. powerful women in the lineage, and also look at the Gentiles in the lineage. Jewish listeners know all these stories. It's in their Bible. So they're like flags. The next one, Rahab, Rachav. Uh, is um, a uh, runs a brothel in Jericho when jo Joshua sends two scouts over to scout out the land before they invade. This is now in the book of Joshua, and Rahab hides them and deceives uh, their the people who are chasing them. She lies and says they went that way. That's They're right. not it's here. Like, that's exactly what she says. <laughs> and uh, we have no. And it says and Rahab because she feared God was given what was was spared when they entered Jericho, captured Jericho, and became part of the Jewish collective. But we have no information beyond that of Rahab's lineage. This is like what? This is this is news. This is news. And note again the connection with the prostitute. Who is Jesus being criticized for hanging out with all the time? Prostitutes. And so it's sort of saying, like it's connecting him, like, look, look, these people are in his his line. Um, so his, his personal association with the outcast and marginalized outcast of society, and marginalized, right. we're sort of, it's sort of saying like his lineage had already set him up for this, you know? Like Richard Pryor. <laughs> <laughs> so, so then we get um, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Bathsheba, again, is a woman. David commits adultery with her sends Uriah, her husband, to the front lines of battle so that he'll be killed because he doesn't want him to find out that he's been sleeping with his wife. So here's again another woman who's in this you know, strange condition um, and who conceives sort of out of wedlock in an irregular way. King as Solomon. Will, as will King Solomon, who comes from this, this, this union, this, union um, this improper union, King Solomon. So we're being reminded that great ones in God's line can come from very controversial and problematic unions. Now, why is that Jewish? Because in the Torah, the one who God chooses is always the runt, right? The Jewish people are not the firstborn, right? Jacob is not the firstborn. Isaac is not the firstborn. Uh, um, uh, in, uh, over and over again, and King David, certainly. Remember the story about King David that we read a few weeks ago? King David is like, after Samuel looks at all of uh, Jesse's children and says, that's not the one, that's not the one. You got anybody else? <laughs> well, there's little Davy who's out with, let me go grab him. And he comes, and he's like the runt of the litter. And the line in Samuel is explicit. God looks at the heart, not at the outer appearance. Uh, so... This is, an, this is a Jewish self-understanding that is as old as Judaism. That God chooses not based on um, uh, being the firstborn or on being the tallest or the strongest. Uh, and uh, that, is, that is also, that's why Matthew's story here is also firmly embedded in Jewish storytelling. 
So that's the, yeah, Hattie. Oh, I, I, you may have mentioned this and I was, didn't get it, but um, what was the deportation to Babylon? What? Well, the question was, what was the deportation to Babylon? This is the Jews being sent into exile in Babylon. Here's why it's significant. But who sent them? Oh, the Babylonians conquered Judea. And in the year 586, destroyed Jerusalem and deported the leadership to Babylon. The reason that date is significant here is that was the last time that a descendant of King David sat on the throne in Jerusalem. It was the uh -huh. end of an era. Uh -huh. So we're marking time, that time is unfolding in these, these you know, symbolic sacred chunks. Um, and then the people will return from Babylonian deportation, restore the temple. Um, but they, they return. They return, but they never reestablish a monarchy. What, how were they led to the return? I mean, who led that? Uh, is it known? Yeah, oh, yes, it's known. After the Babylonian um, uh, were, were conquered by the Persians, the emperor Cyrus and then Darius give the Jewish exiles in Babylon permission to return to and, Jerusalem. And because of that, Cyrus is remembered, and we studied this few weeks ago, Cyrus is remembered as a Gentile Messiah in the scriptures. He is called Mashiach, and he's a Gentile king. So again, you know, those weavings. I'll add just for the, the sake of understanding history. <clears throat> Jewish history has always therefore been uh, split into these eras. The era of when David's ancestors, uh, uh, David's uh, successors sat on the throne in Jerusalem is known as the first temple period because the temple built by King Solomon is destroyed by the Babylonians. When they return, we enter what's known as the second temple period. That temple is destroyed, uh, the temple's rebuilt, and then destroyed in the year 70 by the Romans, right when this is. So if you can imagine, again, a Jew in the year 80-something, they feel like an epic has an epoch has ended that we might be in that moment when of both cataclysm and something incredible about to happen. Do you follow what I'm saying? So it's important to understand uh, what was, how the writers, what's, what moment they were living in historically. Uh, and it's not hard for me to imagine because I grew up in the moment right after the Holocaust and the birth of the State of Israel. It's like this feeling of of utter calamity and momentousness that pervades, not to mention the era of the nuclear bomb and all of that, that pervades so much of my awareness right now. And the temple, uh, is that <coughs> what's called now the Temple Mount? Yes, Where the temple stood on the Temple Mount. But isn't, isn't there a, a, a mosque there? In the eighth century, after Islam's great conquest, uh, they built a golden domed mosque called the Mosque of Omar, on the site of the ancient temple. Because this has happened in cultures forever, yeah. where if you come into a place, you know where their holy place is, you see it as a place of power, and you want to also occupy that spot. It's a natural sort of impulse. So <clears throat> since the 8th century, one of the oldest mosques in the world is on the Temple Mount. And that's another course. <laughs> so, so let's just take a couple more and then keep moving here and here, I think. Yeah. I was almost going to take my comment back because I don't want this to sound like it's anything political. And 
bring up what's in our daily life, but the idea that uh, God would choose someone who's not perfect mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. be the oh. next person, <laughs> mm -hmm. that has been repeated by the evangelicals. Yes. I think the ones I see are evangelical, I don't know, making that statement that, well, we see what he is, this new person that we're, uh, you know, and we support it because we believe God could pick someone who's not perfect. Yeah, so we don't have to go down that rabbit hole. But yeah, this is an to, argument. It's an argument out. of some evangelical Christians who say, "Well, yeah, Trump is an adulterer and a misogynist and a bigot, and but God chooses people like that." So, yeah, that's but exactly but um, <laughs> let's not go down that. But yes, that is an argument that's made. And of course, when we come to Jesus, the whole point is that he isn't a bigot and an adulterer or a misogynist. But um, yeah, we we won't use that to justify Trumpism. Right, but you're right to point it out. Some people make that argument. Yeah. Did you want to respond no, to no, that? No, no, not at all. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Let's jump back over here. I'm just curious how theologically is the right word, but how, well, I'll use theologically, the strong they square with just the commandment not to commit adultery. Like, how's that? The, what, the, who like squares what? Say, how does the Torah, how does this early Christian writer square with the commitment, commandment not to commit adultery? It's one of the beautiful things about the Torah, uh, for me, is that, there are these laws, and then the stories never line up with the laws. It's like, so again, if you want to theologically line it all up, you do what many Jewish and later Christian thinkers have done for many centuries, which is show that actually, if you read it this way, they're blameless. Uh, you know, and it's a really, you really have to tie yourself up in knots to do that, but many, many people have done that for many centuries. I'm not interested. Uh, I'm happier thinking about uh, how interesting that there are these laws, and then there is these stories about our ancestors who mess up constantly. That seems to me an actual, more accurate take mm -hmm. on the thrust of the Bible, which, is, and I'm talking about the Old Testament here, the, which is that, and God still keeps taking us back. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, my kids, they're such a mess, but I love them. So it's not undermining the laws, then. But in no. this, I mean, in the stories, for example, it Only is understood that David undermined the laws, and he's right. punished for it in the story. Bathsheba loses the child as punishment for the adultery that David committed. And so there is that understanding in the text. But some of the other ones are more complex, like, like Tamar. Um, you could say that she had the right, by Jewish law, to sleep with him Absolutely. and receive a child. So she actually isn't breaking law. She's in a, in a sort of um, clever way fulfilling it, you know? Um, but, yes, that, it's, but it's... if we want our heroes to be perfect, um, uh, then, so that that's, that's a particular desire. Uh, and the Torah actually doesn't fulfill that for us. Uh, which makes it for me a lot richer. Um, uh, stories are better when people have flaws. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, and then we'll There's, a, there's a wonderful verse in Psalms which says, the stone which the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. Yeah. Which is a, a, a psalm that the early Christian movement actually applied to Jesus. That he was the cornerstone that was rejected and crucified and becomes the cornerstone in this new movement that is unfolding. Um, so yes, it's it's used often for the underdog who then you know. So David was the rejected cornerstone, or Jesus was the rejected cornerstone. So it's a, a recurring theme. It's 
So having described genealogy, so I then we, we can go on. So then we move to the story, and we're going to be told now about the fifth woman in the lineage of Jesus. And we've just given, given some setup for Mary by hearing these other women described who are kind of on the edges and who conceive in ways that are, you know, not really um, acceptable. Now the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. He, he, he would have the right, you know, to actually call for a stoning, uh, but he's just going to be a good man. He's going to dismiss her quietly, move on with his life. Um, but just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And a quote from Isaiah, Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. So, we have a story here that's giving us um, a framework for Jesus' birth that was perhaps remembered as not being within proper bounds. You know, we're being told that um, this wasn't conceived within wedlock, and Joseph is told, it's okay, it's of God, it's of the Spirit. Um, similarly, Solomon, right? Uh, well, no, by that point, Solomon and Bathsheba have wed after you're out No, guys. David and Bathsheba. David and Bathsheba have wed. Yes, they have. Solomon is the second child. But there's a sense that this child that comes from an improper union is nevertheless of the Holy Spirit, is of God. Um, and Matthew begins doing something in this passage that he'll do throughout his text. This was fulfilled, this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. So we'll see almost every paragraph in the next few sections that theme recurs. He's linking us to the prophets. And just to remind ourselves that I don't think he necessarily thinks he's telling little literal history. He's, he's doing midrash. He's, he's opening the story and connecting it to scripture. Um, the other thing to note is that in the first and second centuries, there are records, and Origen, who I quoted fr from earlier, who called reading Genesis literally stupid. So Origen, in his writings, he records, um, this is a, a passage from him. Let us return, however, to the words put into the mouth of the Jew, and he's quoting... Um, would it be Celsus? Um, this is Celsus' claim for Origen's reply. So he's quoting a Jewish person. I don't know who he's quoting. Where the mother of Jesus is described as having been turned out by the carpenter who was betrothed to her as she had been convicted of adultery and had a child by a certain soldier named Pantera. What? So this is, this is the slur campaign, you know, in the early movement that Mary had had a child by a Roman soldier when she had been betrothed to another person. Now, Origen would have been writing in the early second, actually late second century. And so um, some would say that this was a Jewish response to this story of the virgin birth, right. to undermine it. 
Um, whatever the case may be, you know, people are dancing around this story. And if we go back to Mark's gospel, the earliest one, very interestingly, there's no birth narrative, but Mark does refer to Jesus as the son of Mary. Uh, that reference happens um, uh, uh, one significant moment when he returns to his village in Nazareth, and he's teaching, and they basically say, who does he think he is? And they say, is not this Jesus, the son of Mary, um, the brother of, I think it's James and Joseph, uh, and are not his sisters here with us as well? And so they're saying, we know this guy. He's from among us. Who does he think he is, speaking this wisdom? But significantly, he's referenced simply as the son of Mary, which would have, been an, would have been an unusual way to reference a Jewish male. You would say the son of the father's name. Um, so it implies that at that point, there wasn't a father in the picture. Um, Christian tradition has said that's because by this stage, Joseph has died. Um, but there's, in Mark, there's no reference to a Joseph or to a father at all. And so it does imply that Jesus was remembered as the son of, at least at this stage in the story, a single mother. Um, so um, we've got these, these memories that could have felt problematic for the early movement, right? Um, and I feel like, listening to this, that if Mark is the earliest gospel and there's no birth narrative but this sort of, sort of off, one-off uh, mention of Jesus being the son of, Mary, son of Mary or Miriam as it would be so then I want to look at what Mary is right because I don't think we can say we know anything about Jesus's birth or childhood uh, from a you know factual standpoint uh, though I would say based on the story in Mark that Jesus shows up we know John the Baptist is an historical figure Jesus shows up there it's like okay but everything before that, I'm not sure about at all, right? That doesn't mean it's not meaningful. It just means it's not necessarily factual. Um, so then if all of these genealogies are have a symbolic function uh, to imbue meaning with this person, then who's Miriam? Because Mary in Hebrew is Miriam. Miriam's the most extraordinary figure female figure in the Torah because, first of all, she's a prophetess, brother of Moses, sister of Moses and Aaron. <coughs> Second of all, she is never mentioned with a husband. Okay, think about how completely, I would say, probably unique that is, um, uh, that, Mary, that Miriam is never mentioned as the wife of a man, a man ever. And she's a prophet. She's a person, she's this unique figure of incredible power in the Torah. Um, the only one who might come close is Deborah, because Deborah, who is one of the leaders during the period of the judges, a uh, prophet also, she's known as a prophet and a warrior, uh, sits under the palm tree and judges the people, and she is referred to as Eshet Lapidot which is always translated in, in conventional translation as the wife of Lapidot. Okay, whoever he is. Um, Lapidot means fire. Okay? And Eshet doesn't mean wife of, it also means woman of. So I, I, I don't think Lapidot was somebody. Because uh, who does Deborah, the woman of fire, hang out with? 
What's her general, her, her right-hand man's name? Anybody remember? Barak. Lightning. <coughs> so we've got a whole other storytelling thing going on. So, yeah. Jonathan, also don't forget all the women that were figured later in the kings who were the guardians and protectors of Israel never connected to a husband. That's right. There are all kinds of prophetesses and wise women in the book of Kings, Huldah and others who also, you're right, so there's a tradition, here we are again with uppity women, right? There's, there's, what I mean is, in this strictly patriarchal society, what does it mean for women not to be associated with their uh, patriarch, with the patriarch of a clan, with their protector, with their goel, with their redeemer? So uh, the fact that Miriam is her name, not Mary in the original, and Jesus is associated with Miriam, I don't have the answer. I just have that field of associations for you. Okay? So, um, yes. Oh, and I should say one other thing, which is that, and Joseph, who we have no record of, his father, we have to think about who Joseph is in the tradition also, and we'll get to that more and, later. But we see yeah. Joseph just received a dream, right? Joseph is being communicated to in dreams, and we'll see the text then has Joseph take the Holy Family and flee down into Egypt. And so uh, this man shows up for the first time in the 80s in Matthew's Gospel, Joseph. Uh, is this a figure of history, or is this uh, a midrashic literary creation? Is Joseph a symbolic figure that's intentionally being associated with Joseph the Patriarch, who was a receiver and interpreter of dreams who went down into Egypt? Um, is this you know, a symbolic linking of Jesus with, with that line of Joseph? I would argue, from my limited study so far, that both Joseph and Mary are literary creations. That doesn't mean it's bad. It means that they serve a function in illuminating, eliciting associations for the listeners who live in the, myth, myth, the stories of the Bible. Right? So you hear Joseph having a dream. You got the whole Joseph story. You hear Miriam without a man associated. You know which Miriam you're talking about. And this is the offspring. The offspring of prophets, pro prophecies. When, when Miriam and Joseph get together, you get Jesus. <laughs> yes, Joseph plus Miriam equals Jesus. So rich, symbolic, interpretive uh, world to move in, which again isn't to say that Jesus didn't have human parents um, and, and that there, there isn't an historical Mary or Joseph of whatever name behind this. Maybe. Um, but, well, he had to have human parents. Oh, no, I said a joke. I don't know what their names <laughs> right, were. What, right, exactly. We don't know what their yeah. names were. Yeah. Um, They're a bunch of hints. Go ahead. Um, let's come here first because your hand was up earlier, and then we'll jump back to Gail. But the importance of Joseph is that in this lineage, that's the connection. Well, that's what's fascinating, that's isn't what, it? So the lineage, so Jonathan and I were talking about this, the whole lineage, the 14, 14, 14 generations um, are traced through Joseph. Mm -hmm. So the whole point of the lineage is to say Jesus has yes. the Davidic line flowing in his blood, and this is proved because Joseph was his father. And then the text turns around and says, but by the way, Joseph wasn't his father. <laughs> Which sort of undoes the whole work of building up the lineage because then it says he isn't genetically connected to him. Um, so again, that's a you know there's a symbolic association going on here. Um, Matthew isn't so worried with that. Uh, Gail, 
She said Joseph forgives the brothers who sell him into slavery, so he's known for forgiveness. You know, there's this gentleness in Joseph, and, and he weeps when the brothers come and reconnect with him. So here, we have Joseph, a man who could put away this woman who has conceived a child, apparently illegitimately, and yet he receives the word that however the child has arrived, it is of the Holy Spirit, and he embraces it and, and, and takes her into the family. Yeah. Judaism, but I read a story about Mary, that when they went into Egypt, she became a teacher and a respected um, knowledgeable person, and that's why she didn't want to go back to Bethlehem anywhere, because she had reached a, a status. Um, it's just a, a story, which is clearly just a, a legend that Mary achieved some kind of status as a teacher during her time in Egypt. But there's no reference in early tradition to anything like that at all. Right, yeah. but that's who Miriam was. Ah, uh, yes, right. And so it's linking again midrashically Mary in Egypt with Miriam in, in Egypt or out of Egypt. Yeah, beautiful. Um, so, yeah, one more and then we'll keep moving. Can you speak um, about where the name Jesus came from? It yeah. could be my socialization, but it doesn't feel like a nice Jewish name to me. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's a Greek Iesus, which is um, understood to be a translation of Hebrew Yehoshua or Aramaic Yeshua. Um, so it's Joshua, essentially. And um, what does Joshua mean? Joshua means God saves. Yehoshua means God saves. And Jesus is the Greek of Yehoshua. Uh, just like Mary is the Greek of Miriam, right. uh, Elizabeth is the Greek of Elisheba. Um, so uh, just like today, even today, we have English forms. My name's Jonathan in English, but my given name is Jonathan because it's Hebrew. Yeah. Do you want to make your plug for Jesse? <laughs> yes. Yes? yes. <laughs> right. Isus. Isus in Greek. You can't do Isus to Hashua. It doesn't compute. It's Isus. You think it's Jesse? Isus in Yosef um, uh, in Josephus, it's Isus. He's very, very, very clear. And it's this way. It's not this way. This is a great point. Yeah. So if Jesus is the Greekification of Jesse, it's Yossi. Jesse is the father of David. Right. Um, so, uh, so maybe we've been misinterpreting it all these years. So you could, you could take the Greek, the point being that potentially the Greek could be um, a translation of Jesse or of Yeshua. Um, and Jesse, the branch from Jesse, you know, the branch out of right. Jesse and Isaiah has traditionally been associated with Jesus. Um, and so the argument could be made there that Jesus or, or Jesse, that these aren't given names but titles. You know, that, that, that he was given, given the title Yehoshua, God saves, um, as a, as, um, rather than a, a birth name. And Let also, can I just add, because he's never, it's Isus Haristos, and it's Isus also in the Gospels, 
So you have that title of the Savior, the Anointed One, which is interesting that they never give him, when they talk about him, a Jewish lineage. They don't do it that way. They make that reference, which is also why it seems to me it is his title more than what his actual given name was. Jonathan asked me to repeat that back, but I can't do it justice. So. Okay, so, it, so this is perhaps a title more than a... So let me point out why it might be a wordplay based on what you said. In one of the most important proof texts in the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verse 1, it says, But a shoot shall grow out of the stump of Jesse. A twig shall sprout from his stock. Okay, so this is Isaiah in um, uh, the 7th century BCE, uh, 8th century actually, uh, BCE, um, talking about how um, the kingdom will be restored, not predicting the future necessarily. But the word for a, t a twig or a sprout is netzer, netzer. The Hebrew name of Nazareth is Natsrat. okay? So when you read this in Hebrew, uh, it says, choter mi geza yishai v'netzer. So right next to other are words Jesse and Netzer, Jesse being the father of the Davidic lineage. So you could also, again, remember I was talking last week about how this kind of intense, close reading where you shift the sound a little. You could say Yishai, Jesse of Nazareth. Right, so embedded, so we don't even know if Jesus was from Nazareth. Maybe Nazareth, uh, I mean, it's probable, that's very, yeah, it's very likely. I mean, he's remembered in the earliest texts as Jesus of Nazareth. And we'll right. see why that's important when we come to them having him born in Bethlehem. Why so, is he called Jesus of Nazareth? So, so not to belabor this anymore, but in the classic Hebrew wordplay, they take the name Nazareth and use it because Natsrat and Netzer are the same letters, which means a twig or a sprout. And so Jesus is the sprout both of Yishai and from Nazareth. And there's all kinds of layers of wordplay going on here, which is how they rolled, everybody. That's the Jewish way. We still do it. We still have, we're playing with words all the time as our sort of sacred uh, study. That's what we do. So to keep the ball rolling, where we move next is um, chapter two. On the, the second page, we're told, in the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. So we're just told he was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Uh, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him and calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men, and the word here is magos, um, magi, we could literally translate it. And um, there's some confusion as to what the word would reference historically. A lot of scholars say magi at this time was actually the word for Zoroastrian priests. Um, whatever the case is, the point is these are, are pagans, uh, these are Gentiles, these are not Jews. Um, they're associated with astrology and with 
some kind of priestcraft of a non-Jewish tradition. Um, then he said to them, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring word so that I may go also and pay him homage. Uh, when they heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star, and they had seen its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy on entering the house. Now this is significant. Mary and Joseph are living in a house in Bethlehem, right? In this version. In this version. So just note, you've got your image of them. There's not an inn, and they go into a manger in a stable, and, and they don't live in Bethlehem. They live in Nazareth. This is the story that we'll see is in Luke. In Luke. In this version, they're living in Bethlehem. They have a house in Bethlehem, and the Magi show up at their home, okay? Um, on entering the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother. They knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. So let's stop there and just break open these magi, um, these, these wise men. So again, if we're moving in the realm of Midrash and scriptural association, Matthew is trying to um, draw out scriptural associations. I want to read just a few verses and then let Jonathan um, break this open a little further. But um, again in the prophet Isaiah, the prophet says, uh, Lift up your eyes and look around you. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from far away. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those of Sheba will come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall proclaim the praise of the Lord. So we have here people coming from Midian, Ephah, and Sheba bringing gold and frankincense. Um, you'll probably, through mental association, be familiar with um, camels at the manger, right, in, in our story. There are no camels in the text. Where did the camels come from? They come from Isaiah. Uh, Matthew doesn't mention camels. Luke doesn't mention camels. And so we see that Matthew is shaping his story of the wise men based on this passage from Isaiah, of those coming from, um, from Sheba and offering golden frankincense. The myrrh isn't mentioned here, but if you remember, the queen of Sheba comes to Solomon, and she brings spices, and it said the land flowed with spices more than ever after her visit. Myrrh was one of the principal spices that was traded in. And so there, myrrh enters the picture. Um, at the same time, Psalm 72, and this is a, a, a psalm of the Messiah. The kings of Tarshish and of the Isles shall pay tribute, and the kings of Arabia and Saba offer gifts. Long may he live, and may there be given to him gold from Arabia. So we see how this narrative is being crafted out of these passages. Um, so... Uh, beautifully said. Yes, Karen. Another telling of that, there's another road, if I may. James Taylor says this. He says this. I'll follow James anywhere. <laughs> It'll come back. It'll come back. Yeah, so if it comes back, yeah, bring it back up. Um, but but just to see, it'll, it'll um, just to see that that this isn't necessarily an historical narrative. It's a symbolic narrative that's making a symbolic point. 
um, that, that what was pointed to in the Psalms, what was pointed to in Isaiah, um, that this is its, its, its fulfillment. And the other thing to recognize is that these are Gentiles. And this is, again, Matthew saying, the Gentiles belong in the story. The Gentiles were there at his birth. The Gentiles, the pagans, recognized him. So he's making a point again about um, sort of breaking open the circle. Mary and Joseph could have kicked these pagans out. You know, who, who the heck are these pagan Zoroastrians coming in? Like, get out of here. We're good Orthodox Jews. Or they could have said, we're not going to go to a Jewish Messiah. You know, that's another. And so it's, it's, it's showing cultures colliding and um, coming together. What are the verses? He says this. He says, those magic men of Asia. Some people call them wise, or orientals, even kings. Well, anyway, those guys. They visited with Jesus. They sure enjoyed their stay. Then, warned in a dream of King Herod's scheme, they went home by another way. And he says this. He says, steer clear of royal welcomes. Avoid a big to-do. A king who would slaughter the innocents will not cut a deal. Uh. He really, really wants your treasures. He'll comb your camel's fur till his boys announce they found trace amounts of frankincense, gold, and <laughs> So go listen to James Taylor. Go listen to yeah. James retelling the story. So now I want to, uh, can I jump yeah, in? please. Okay, so. Um, Tell us who these magi are, Jonathan. <laughs> right. Okay, so again, this is not an historical account. This is a Jewish telling about the birth of this amazing, transformative Jesus that we are now think is the neck is the is the the the, the culmination, the culmination of Jewish history. Um, so um, let's see. Did did they they. They went down, did they go down to Egypt yet? No, we're going to come back to Egypt because then we're going to look at, at Moses' birth narrative. Okay, good, so good, let's good. Just stay with the Magi. Okay, just with the Magi. Who's our guy? Um, the, oh, oh, Balaam. Balaam. Yes, yeah, so let me tell you about that. But first, I want to mention Bethlehem. Why does it have to be Bethlehem in the Jewish telling? House of Bread. It means House of Bread. Oh, it's where David was born. Oh, right. And it's, so, again, it's a symbolic linking. But for Jesus to be the Messiah, he needs to be from Bethlehem. That's all. It's King David's hometown. But historically, we assume Jesus was most likely born in Nazareth. He's remembered in the early text as Jesus of Nazareth, not Jesus of Bethlehem. So the likelihood is he was born in Nazareth. He grew up in Nazareth. He was Jesus of Nazareth. But we need a, we need a symbolic linking with Bethlehem. And so we see, we'll see both Matthew and Luke link him to Bethlehem in two very different ways. What is? I don't remember the story of that they were traveling. Yep. So were they traveling through? Bethlehem? So hold on, because that's jumping to Luke's gospel. Ooh. Right. In Matthew's gospel, they live there in a home in Bethlehem. Okay. And and they get to Nazareth. Well, so, so I'll I'll do a quick synopsis here. What's going to happen is they live in Bethlehem. They're going to have to flee into Egypt because Herod is going to want to kill all the male babies, which should gospel. be a story that sounds familiar from the Moses story, and then. When it's safe, they come out of Egypt and settle in Nazareth. And so Jesus grows up in Nazareth. So that's how we get him to Nazareth. In Matthew. From Bethlehem, in Matthew. You'll see a, a very different trajectory happens in Luke's Gospel. So, Okay, so, Magi. I was reading, uh, 
I was reading the notes here, and then I went on my excursion into Jewish, uh, Jewish stories. Okay, so there's a prophet in the book of Numbers, a, a, a Gentile prophet called Balaam. It's, uh, it's in the book of Numbers. The children of Israel, led by Moses, are camped uh, on the eastern side of the Jordan in the steppes of Moab, and the king Balak is, wants them to be cursed. He's terrified of them, and he hires this guy named Balaam, who's not, a, not an Israelite, but who is a prophet of God. He, he reads omens, he hears God's voice, uh, he is, and if you pay him enough, he will come and curse the Israelites. Balaam says, this, you have to read this story, this is one of the best sort of short stories in the Torah, uh, in terms of a little funny, engaging literary unit, um, but, which I won't tell you in detail now. Um, but Balaam says, you can pay me all you want, I can only come prophesy what the Lord puts in my mouth. And so uh, Balak says, I don't care, come. And instead of cursing the Israelites, all that comes out of Balaam's mouth is blessing, right? And the story escalates, and Balak is just freaked out, and it's a great story, okay? But Balaam, in the Jewish tradition, has a very, very bad reputation in the Jewish, because he took the money and uh, was willing to curse them, and he, he, he becomes, in the Jewish story, sort of a, a really bad guy who is not translated as a prophet in the Greek translations of the um, Torah, but as a magos. As a magos. Like magi. magi. The same word that is applied to these the wise, wise men. men. <laughs> the, a magi. Someone who does magic, right? Someone who sees omens, who uh, reads the stars, who, you know, all that stuff. So Balaam is a magi. So if you hear about a magi in this you're story, jump to the you're story jumping Balaam. to the story of Balaam. What did Balaam say in one of his uh, prophecies? He said, what I see for them, what I behold, a star rises from Jacob, a scepter comes forth from Israel. This is one of Balaam's prophecies. A star. Oh, okay. We observed his star at its rising, say the Magi. The Magi who are coming. So, for the Jewish listener, for whom these stories are their mother's milk, right? You know, as you know, you, you, you guys aren't that familiar with the story of Balaam. But it would have been one, it's a one for the campfire, I tell you. It's a great story. <laughs> you would know Balaam's prophecy, that a star is going to rise from Jacob. So... The three wise men echo this well-known story of a non-Jewish um, um, prognosticator uh, from, uh, uh, from the Torah. Then I went and looked at the Midrashim uh, about the birth of Moses, which we're going to get into. It says, in, now remember what Midrashim are? Midrashim are expansions on the story. And there, there are there are midrashim that are marginal, that, but there are other midrashim that become mainstream, that everybody knows. 
So you, for, you basically don't know the difference between the, the midrashim and the scripture. They've just all become a whole in it's your imagination. Just like the Jesus story, the birth story today. You know, we have what is essentially a mashup midrash about the birth of Jesus that just sort of like emerged, right? It 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 emerges from it's it's an organic process, I think. So in these days, in first century uh, Judea, there are Midrashim, and Moses, who is the greatest Jew who ever lived, obviously, no prophet has arisen since, who speaks to God face to face. He gave us our Torah, right? All we know about Moses is the amazing birth story, but then once he's taken into the palace by uh, Pharaoh's daughter, we know nothing until he's a young man, the next passage. So there's a Just like the Jesus tradition, where yeah. we have the amazing birth story, and then his childhood and teenage years are gone, and then he's a young man. Walking and, out and seeing how the Hebrews are being mistreated in the <laughs> Moses story. So there are countless midrashim about young baby Moses. And about young baby Jesus. The Christians did the same thing. We've got early texts from the early church, um, like the infancy gospel of Thomas, not to be confused with the gospel of Thomas, which tells the stories of Jesus' childhood. Like boy wonder Jesus and how he does miracles as a kid. And, um, and this is Christians doing midrash on the gap in the story. The infancy gospel has pictures. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, uh, what, what I wanted to say about that actually is that, is that early Christians and Jews are drawing from the same body of lore. Okay? So if there's a story about Moses... That same story can be told about Jesus. And one of the stories about Moses told at this time is that when Pharaoh didn't trust this Hebrew baby and wanted to make sure, and, the, and it, the story about Pharaoh is that the Hebrew baby, he would dandle the baby on his knee and the baby would grab his throne and put it on. And he said, uh-oh, crown. His, cr his crown and put it on. And uh, so he called three wise men, three magi, who, all from the east, Balaam, Job is listed as one of them, and Jethro, the uh, uh, father. So they get, they get repurposed to be the <laughs> astrologers who are non-Jews who come to Pharaoh and uh, to predict uh, whether this baby is going to try to usurp the throne. Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, in the Jewish Midrashim, who's also, Gabriel's all over the in New Testament. Gabriel's like the angel, right? Uh, uh, Gabriel, in this midrash about Moses, baby Moses, shows up in disguise and essentially uh, makes sure that Moses isn't found out. Uh, I won't tell you the whole, it's a great story. Um, there's like a coal, a hot coal, red hot coal, and a beautiful... Uh, um, uh, gemstone. You're going to tell the whole story. I am. I have to. <laughs> and if the baby Moses reaches for the gemstone, that's the sign that he wants the throne. And Gabriel like moves his hand over. Moses brings the coal to his lips, which explains why Moses is slow of speech. It's a whole story. We don't know why Moses is slow of speech. So you tell a story about it. Okay? And I want to point out that I grew up with traditional Jewish education, so I always thought that was in the Torah, because I heard the story along with 
our study of Chumash, of, of the text. It was only when I read the Torah again as a student in college, I said, wait, where's the part about the... <laughs> and that's when I started to understand Midrash. So, but my point is that in the contemporaneous Midrash about baby Moses, there are three magi. And who's the king in this case? Pharaoh, who wants to kill all the baby boys. And, and the really important thing here to remember is that as these midrashim were being told and shared and spread in the tradition, people didn't think they were lying. You know, we're not making up falsehoods to deceive people about the childhood of Moses. No, we're just filling out the story in these beautiful, poetic, creative ways. And so when the Christians did the same thing with the, the birth and the childhood of Jesus, it wasn't that they were lying. They were, they were doing what Jews do. The legend grows. And, and uh, again, I'll point out that everybody's working with the same set of resources. The Bible, which they know inside out, and the extant stories about the Bible, which, which, are, create, which are kind of um, a, uh, uh, a petri dish, a substrate. You know, it's just sort of there. And uh, that's how stories go. Uh, so, again, I'm not saying that the, you know, one reaction would be, oh, they took our story. We're all sharing the same stories. We're all Jews telling stories about the stuff we care about the most. And so we use the reference, cultural references, plot lines, and sacred texts that uh, are the way we organize our narratives. That's what I wanted to say about that. So, so then, yeah, let's jump on. Just real quick. Um, you had said, Matthew, that they were making a point to say that Gentiles belonged in the story at this point. But we're talking about people still identifying as Jewish. So were well, by they the trying time, to expand the movement? Oh, it's, for, it's expanded by the time these Gospels are written. Okay. You've got Gentiles in all the Christian communities by this point. Um, Paul, in the 50s and 60s, is doing the work of integrating Gentiles into the movement and spreading the movement. He saw himself as the Jewish apostle to the Gentiles. And so that's happening. Um, and that's in the early decades. So 50s, 60s, that debate is raging. And by the time this is written in the 80s, Gentiles are in your communities, like in, in your Jewish Christian communities. They're a part of it. Um, Matthew's community seems to be predominantly Jewish um, and it, because of the way he writes. That's the thought. But still, he's, he's including Gentiles in his story and in his community. Yeah. And uh, oh, Sorry, and he's doing it... Uh, uh, when he chooses proof texts, like, uh, look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, quoting Isaiah. Isaiah. Uh, he's doing Jewish, right? Doing Jewish is you take a verse from scriptures that supports your telling. And that doesn't, that doesn't mean that's the only interpretation. This is where literalism gets in the way. That doesn't mean it's the only interpretation. In fact, my take on, on the rabbinic method is that they revel <coughs> in pulling out a great proof text and saying, and every, I can picture, you know, if you go to a, uh, you know, some serious Jewish Torah study today, and people say, well, that reminds me of this person. He goes, oh, you know, nice one, uh -huh. right? So, uh, so it even means that you are allowed to creatively misread the text. So as you may know, the word virgin as it's translated from the Greek Parthenos, in the Hebrew is alma, which means a maiden, a young woman. Betula means virgin, virgin in Hebrew. 
Alma could be translated simply, look, a young woman shall conceive. But you could say Alma is virgin, mm -hmm. right? That's because, not the, because you would apply Alma to a woman before she was married. Right. And so it implies that, you know, so there's a range of interpretive meaning in the word. So my point is that they're not corrupting the text, saying, and you want to say, it doesn't say that. You know, well, it could say that. And it did say that for Jews who were reading the Greek Septuagint. So most of these Jews were reading the Hebrew Bible in Greek at this point. And in the Septuagint version, Alma had become Parthenos, virgin. And so when they went back to the scriptures, the verse would have read to them Parthenos, virgin, because they were reading it in Greek. Right, but a virgin shall conceive doesn't mean she doesn't have intercourse. Right? It means she's a virgin, she's pure, she's unsullied. You know, it's like, it doesn't mean that a virgin conceived from the Holy Spirit, but this is the way you do it. And it's very much part of the way these early Christians, Matthew was a Jew, and he's doing it. He's playing the game of how you find scriptural proof texts. And that makes it a very Jewish text. Uh, that's what I wanted to share with you. Does that make sense? And, and okay. just a word on the symbolic use in the tradition of, of virgin. It's, it's understood. You can hear it in a literal way. But it also refers to, we talk about virgin snow, right? That's untouched. Um, it, it can be used to refer to this state of sort of pristine receptivity um, uh, in the mystical tradition. Thomas Merton, as recent as Thomas Merton, he talked about the virgin point in the soul. That there is this point of purity within every human being. That virginal state of receptivity to the divine within all of us. And so That's to, say too, that, to say that, that, <laughs> that, that yeah. we, we have our own way of saying and that. And so to say thing. that, Christ emerges from the virgin is to say that Christ emerges from that that human pristine untouched you know image Un of God within us unsullied unsullied and that that and so in in our mystical tradition in Christianity this then gets applied to all of us and this is why the poetic imagination is so important um, Meister Eckhart great Christian mystic in the 14th century he says of these passages um, we are all meant to be mothers of God because God is always needing to be born what good is it to me if Mary is full of grace if I also am not full of grace he says this then is the fullness of time when the Son of God when God is begotten in us um, and so we can take this image and if we lock it into just a rigid literalism that it's just literally about uh, a gynecological report that a virgin gave birth 2,000 years ago, well then a weird thing happened 2,000 years ago and then it becomes an article of belief that you either believe in or you don't believe in. If we see it as an archetypal symbol about that state and potentiality within all of us to, to give birth to God, to bring uh -huh. forth that Christic possibility, um, Mary is a template for our journey, that we too are to conceive God in the womb of our hearts and give birth to the Christ. Um, and so the mystical tradition is able to, to take these stories and apply them. They're not just something that happened externally in history, but they're a, a process that happens internally in us. Um, and so what is it for Gabriel to announce to each of us that we are to conceive and bear the Holy One? Beautiful. Um, That's like a great Christmas sermon. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm warming up. <laughs> but, 
but I mean it right. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Beautiful. Amen. Amen to that. Yeah. Um, yes, and we'll come back over. behind you, Hattie, and then yeah. It's a cultural in every culture. It's the role of the grandparents and the grandchildren to embellish their grandchildren and their grandparents. My great 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 grandmother. I'm related to it's the role of every culture to embellish the generations before us. Uh, yeah, yeah, lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes? This seems like a time to ask a question that's been on my mind since day one. Okay. Over the last number of years, I have personally become more identified with, with the Christ. Okay? With that, God? With Jesus, with, with, Christ. The, with the Christ. And with the identification of that, Jews for Jesus notwithstanding, is there a movement of mature marriage of of of, of, of the traditions of, of, of the traditions of, of the Talmudic? There, Would you repeat that question? So That's is a there? Question. So he he was saying that as a Jew over the years he's become more and more he's found himself resonating more and more with Jesus with this figure of the Christ and Jesus, but not in a Jews for Jesus kind of way. And are there models of an integration of the traditions that doesn't go down that route? And um, I, I don't know that there are so much movements. I mean, there are currents like what we're doing here. Um, you know, the, a figure who comes to mind is, is Rabbi Rami Shapiro, who's, you know, wild, crazy guy. And Rami, um, there was a program called the Spiritual Paths Institute, and it took contemplative teachers from all the major religious traditions. Rami was the Jewish faculty member. Um, Cynthia Bourgeau was the Christian. Kabir and Kamil Hominsky were the Sufis. Swami Rupananda, Ramakrishna monk was the Hindu. So you had all these figures of different traditions. And one part of the program, they were each to speak on an exemplar from their tradition who fully embodied their tradition. And Rami spoke on Jesus <laughs> um, as a Jew. And um, so, you know, there are, I think, people who are reclaiming Jesus within Judaism, not as, not in the way Jews for Jesus would, but I can't point to any specific, you know, places or... Right, it's such a heavy lift, as you know, Gary. What we're doing right here, right now, is not something I've encountered elsewhere in my life as a public Jew, because there's so much accumulated um, uh, mistrust, pain, trauma, right. and it's not in the past, right? It's going on constantly from those Christians who are still persuaded that they have to, uh, uh, that we, that Jews have to change in order to be. In the fullness of time. Uh, right. We're here now. Yeah. This is right. No, but that, so, so my, uh, my impressionistic response is we are at the cutting edge yes. right here, right now. Yes. Um, and I think I, I think I could stand behind that statement. So keep working it and report back <laughs> what you find as you work towards a personal integration. Right, and this is a, so you're in the right place, I would say. And this is the cuspy moment we are in as a human family, where right. our traditions are meeting and merging and blending in all kinds of new creative ways right. that haven't been possible in previous generations. You know, just hasn't been possible. Old boundaries are being eroded. We've got all kinds of interfaith marriages and we've got you know Jews practicing Buddhist meditation Jubus we've got Muslims doing yoga we've got you know Hindus going right. to Christian churches like we've got this new world with all kinds of new 
possibilities. And, and so as Jonathan says, we, we as a community here are on the edge, but the human family is on the edge of new ways of stepping beyond our old boundaries. Well said. Uh, Pete Seeker wrote a song I love called, called uh, uh, All Mixed Up. He wrote a long time ago, soon mama, this whole world, soon mama gonna get mixed up. And then it's, every verse is about different ways that people are eating, like macaroni came from China. And it, he's, it's a great song that, as usual, Pete, in a writing more than 50 years ago, was predicting this, uh, that our world is getting all mixed up. Yeah. And, and importantly, we can, you know, we can have voices that cry out against syncretism, that we're corrupting our, our pure and unsullied traditions. But the truth is, so-called syncretism has always been a part of all of our traditions. Syncretism, S-Y-N-C-R-E-T-I-S-M. It's, it's the, the, the melding and mingling of traditions. Um, we've never had pure, uncorrupted traditions. You know, Judaism drew from resources from the Babylonian exile that influenced Judaism. Um, Christianity, which began as Jewish, drew from Greco-Roman, you know, thought and Platonic philosophy. Islam built on Judaism and Christianity. There's no hermetically Buddhism, sealed right. culture. Buddhism went off into East Asia and merged with Taoism and produced Zen. Like our traditions have always been meeting, mixing, sharing. And the idea today that there, there are, you know, pure, pristine, unblemished traditions like that's, that's an illusion. That's an academic illusion in our heads. It is. Um, and so uh, our religions don't exist apart from the people who embody them. And as the human family evolves, our religions will keep evolving. Well said. Know? Well said. And with that analysis, since we're talking in this direction, we have to keep in mind the dynamics of power and oppression, yes. right, and of privilege, yes. so that um, a minority like Jews in a predominantly Christian country, it's not a level playing field for a Christian to say to me, why can't we all get along? Right? right? Just the same as me talking to, say, an African-American person about, uh, about when they feel like something from their culture is once again being co-opted by the, the white majority. And, well, you know, isn't that great? You know, well, it is and it isn't. So our, we can't be naive. Right in our analysis of let's all get along, right? There's, it's, it's much more complicated. We can't jump to an artificial unity before we've addressed the structural, systemic, theological modes of oppression. Um, we can't just pretend that isn't there. Um, those things have to be addressed, healed, mended before we can come to a new place. And we're, we're doing it you know, on a small scale right here. Right, that's why I like working with Matthew among many reasons because he's aware of all of this. So I'm not talking to someone who's kind of clueless about why would that bother you? You know, when my history is, there are plenty of good reasons why I want to protect the integrity of my people, right? So I want to just keep Hattie, and then we'll, I'm going to get back into the text. Well, just on, that made me think of something I just wanted to say, which is within Christianity, um, I, as an Episcopalian, cannot take communion in the Catholic Church. So there's Christianity actually excluding Christians from the tradition, which that just came as a thought. It's not mm. what I meant to say to begin with. So what you're saying is kind of has evolved into what I'm realizing, what I didn't realize, I'm surprised, um, how much of what what I believe and 
I'm not, I don't mean this in a bad way, mm -hmm. a, a fabrication of story yeah. in order to fit an ancient um, idea. And here it says, like, I'm reading these now, it's the first time I've ever seen it together on paper. Um, she will bear a son, you name him Jesus. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken to right. the prophet. And then another page says, this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the prophet. Right, Matthew prophet. loves that phrase, this was to fulfill. So I'm going to repeat just briefly what Hattie said, and then you continue. She's saying that it's uh, to realize that so much of what you love and cherish in your sacred story is, her word was, a fabrication that was designed to fulfill certain things. Um, yeah, fabrication has a, a sort of negative connotation, you know, that this was a natural, organic, um, meaning-making process. Uh, you know, for me, I recognize that a lot of these stories are likely not historical narratives, and yet I live and move and breathe and have my being in these stories. Um, and the stories are just as meaningful and alive and true and powerful. And, and I live them year after year. In, in the same way, a lot of the narrative about the life of Moses or Abraham and Sarah, you know, a lot of that probably isn't historical. It's shrouded in layers of myth and legend. And yet we live and move and have our, 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 our sacred life in those stories. Um, and as Jonathan often says, we have to live with this sort of split screen you know, there's all the historical, factual, you know, modern, postmodern stuff. But then there's the sacred world of story and liturgy that we live in. Um, and to be able to live in both and actually not put them in competition. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, this but, just made me much more aware of that, um, the way those two kind of mix together. Mm -hmm. But they've come out, and I mean, I'm completely dedicated to Christmas story and right. every every reading, every aspect, and I've even added my own. <laughs> yes, right. We all do. Yes. But so I, I love it dearly. But yeah. this is interesting to see how something was changed to fit something, yeah. and I never <laughs> thought of that. Before. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, and it can be when we receive new information, it can be unsettling. It can be upsetting. Um, you know, as we develop a new paradigm, that can be a little confusing and even painful at times as, as an understanding of a tradition that's beloved shifts. Um, and so if anyone encounters discomfort, first of all, you don't have to take our word for everything. We're just <laughs> expressing one, one perspective within a wide open field. Um, but also, yeah, give yourself room to sift and see what, what settles out and works for you. Um, I see a few hands. I want to just move. It's, we'll get back to hands at the end, um, to questions. But I want to see if we can just round out this okay. narrative before we end. And then when we come back after Christmas, we'll look at Luke's narrative and uh, at, at John's cosmic sort of mystical prologue. But what happens next in the story, um, the gifts are given by the Magi. And they hear in a dream that, Herod's a bad guy. He doesn't really mean it when he says he wants to pay homage to the kid. He wants to kill him. Go home another way. So they don't go back. And um, the angel then appears to Joseph again in a dream state and says, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Uh, and we're told they got up and they fled. And this was to fulfill 
what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. So there again, he's taking a reference um, and, and applying it to the Jesus story. Out of context, the, the yeah. son in that quote is Israel, but the, the people of Israel. Uh, so. And then Herod is infuriated, and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. So this story should call up an association with the story of Moses' birth. So if you remember, uh, the Pharaoh, he is fearful of what could happen if the Hebrew people continue to raise up children. And so he tells all of the midwives, um, if, a, if a boy child is born, kill it. Um, and then we find out that, that they're not killing the children as they're supposed to. Um, and then Pharaoh ordered all his people to throw every newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile, but to let the girls live. What happens here, Herod orders that every boy under two years old be killed. Um, this is a, an echo, an obviously explicit echo of the, Herod, of the, of the Pharaoh story. And that there's nothing in the historical record that recounts a slaughter of innocents under King Herod. Um, this is the only reference we have to that. You would think if there was an historical memory of a whole bunch of Jewish babies being slaughtered under Herod, Josephus would have written about that, other historians would have written about it. The likelihood is that this is a midrash based on the story of Pharaoh slaughtering the innocent boys. Jesus is the new Moses. Moses. So that is Matthew's agenda in shaping this. He wants to present Jesus as the new Moses. Jesus is the new liberator of the people. Um, and we'll see throughout his gospel, he uses that framing device again and again. Even when Jesus gives his Sermon on the Mount, which can be divided into um, uh, sort of major sections, kind of like the Ten Commandments, Jesus goes up on the mountain and gives his sermon. It's sort of like Moses going up and receiving the commandments. So again and again, we're being, the story is being shaped by the earlier story. Do you mind if I ask? Yeah, please. Okay, so again, to give the sense of literary depth that Matthew was working with that we don't have unless we dig in ourselves, he quotes a particular line from Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled, for they are no more. A very prominent line in, in Jewish uh, uh, um, Uh, um, a very prominent line. I can't speak. I'll just wait a second. It's okay. Keep going. Now, I, I get distracted by phones. It's okay. A very prominent line in Jewish teaching because the, 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 um, the voice heard in Rama is Rachel weeping for her children. Rachel comes to symbolize by the time of the first century the Shekhinah the mother of exiles, the mother of the Jewish people. So Rachel, Rachel is, by Rachel being um, uh, called forward here, it's also in the destruction of the temple, part of the weeping. So it's very deep, but that's not all, because if you go on in that very famous chapter of Jeremiah, 
you hear one of the most, a few verses later, one of the most important proof texts for, that Christians, Jewish Christians use. See, a time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. It will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers. Who's responsible for the, co- the first covenant? Moses. It will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. A covenant which they broke, though I had espoused them, I had uh, made them my bride, um, declares the Lord. But such is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my Torah into their inmost being and inscribe it on their hearts. And then I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer will they need to teach one another and say to one another, um, uh, 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 know the Lord or obey the Lord for all of them from the least of them to the greatest shall know me declares the Lord okay. this is this is Jeremiah's most incredible vision looking at his screwed up people in the 6th century BCE and saying the time's going to come and we're going to understand this in our inmost being and we're not going to have to so, so by this, this as you can hear it's the mention of the Brit Chadashah the new covenant, the, the new testament. That's where it's mentioned. And here. Christians will understand Jesus to be the one who comes to put the law into our hearts rather than on tablets of stone, and, and it becomes internalized. So he's understood through that interpretive lens. Right. So again, picture the, the listener who knows Jeremiah, who hears one verse and knows the rest of the psalm, right? You hear, I want to hold your hand, and you've got a whole story in your head, right? You hear a voice is heard in Rama weeping. You have the whole chapter of Jeremiah. It's like a headline. And that's what I want to, that, that's why we're sort of, we don't know our, we don't know our Bible, you know, the way, uh, uh, the way previous generations did. But if you, but we can learn it. And then you can start to imagine the power and the resonance of Matthew choosing that particular verse as he retells, in terms of Jesus, the story of Moses' miraculous birth and not being killed by Pharaoh. Uh, yeah. Okay? Bravo. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get the last word. In the history of music, we see this, right? The references keep getting added on and the stories, the musical stories keep on getting Symphony. So these are da, 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 da. right. This is part of the storytelling technique in the arts and in, in the oral tradition. So that's why it keeps repeating, and and there's variations on a theme. And it's not like one is new or better. It's that just keeps getting added on to. It's an agglomeration. That's right. Not that's right. Yeah. And uh, so it's an. I want to give Matthew the last word because it's two o'clock. Uh, Ronnie, can yes. So does that mean the Ten Commandments were eliminated by the, the Christians? No, most Christian churches historically have had the like Ten Commandments plastered somewhere on a wall on a yeah. So they've been very central and they're taught in Sunday school and so absolutely not. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. there's a ten, the the Ten Commandments plus the uh, internalizing of of God's uh, speaking, right? Is that what you're saying? Um, you it, have both. It, uh, it, 
Let's yes, see. Yes, that, that you want to you want these to be laws that arise spontaneously from you because they're patterned into your heart, into your way of being, not just externally imposed things. And that's of course the intention of all the prophets. They're wanting this to move inside of us so we live out of it. Um, so but to, to do you want to add to that? No, no, I want to give you the so last word. To, to, to come oh. back into the text, because we'll just end the narrative here. So what happens? They fled into Egypt, um, and then we're told that they, they remain in Egypt until they know that it's safe. Um, Remind you of Moses? Moses stays in Midian until, it says in the Bible, he heard that the king had died. Right. And so Joseph waits until he hears that King Herod has died. When he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream, again, Joseph the dreamer, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets, Matthew's favorite line, might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. And so now we link back up with Mark's narrative, and we're... And the very next thing in this is the baptism by John. And so we've just been given this beautiful midrash about the birth of, of Jesus that's just rich with layers and layers and layers of scriptural resonance. Um, and, and that lands us in Nazareth with the historical memory that Jesus was called Jesus of Nazareth. Now, we won't go into this now, but I'll just sort of give you the preview for next time. We'll look at Luke's gospel and his birth narrative and... The sort of, in a nutshell, we'll see in that text, they actually begin living in Nazareth. That's where the Holy Family lives. So since Luke has them start out there, he has to find a way to get them to Bethlehem. So there's a census that draws them to Bethlehem, and then the child is born there, and then they just return safely home to Nazareth. And there's, and there's, no, there's no slaughter of the innocents, there's no descent um, flight into Egypt. No three magi. No three magi. Instead, there are shepherds who come to see the baby at the manger, and we'll see all, and of, those, manger, not all a... of those stories. We'll look at the, the references that, from Hebrew scripture that created that midrash wow. as well. There's um, even a completely different lineage. Yeah, a, a different, a different lineage of Jesus. And, um, and we'll see Luke traces... names. Luke traces the lineage in a different way with a different theological intent. Um, now, in our popular imagination, we have the Magi at the manger. There's no manger in the story with the Magi. We have the shepherds there. Um, we, we, all the stories get... We have camels, which aren't even mentioned in the text, but were mentioned in Isaiah. It's this beautiful mashup of all these threads. Um, and so what we're doing, we're just stepping back and looking at them one at a time. Um, and so next go, we'll look at Luke's version, and then we'll look at John's version. Beautiful. Beautiful. Beautiful.